I can remember, uh, like it was yesterday, my seventh grade basketball tryouts. I, I went to Pete Junior High in Conroe, Texas, and I was almost as tall in seventh grade as I am now. So I thought basketball tryouts were going to be a piece of cake. I was just going to lay up all over everybody's heads, you know, and, and they were just going to hand me a jersey. That's what I thought. Well, tryouts got started, and we did a couple of drills. We did some dribbling and some layups, but about halfway through, Coach Woodham blew the whistle and had us all line up against one of the walls, and then he just ran us ragged. I mean, the majority of tryouts were just running sprints. Uh, We called them down and backs. Now, down and back, that's a very highly technical basketball term, if you've never heard it, where you run down to the end of the other side of the court and then back, okay? Very complicated. We ran down and backs, it felt like for an hour, nonstop, my goodness. And I remember about halfway through, I started thinking, what does this have to do with basketball? <laughs> and, and really, Coach Woodham knew what he was doing. It had a lot more to do with basketball than I thought it did in the moment. See, in his mind, he didn't just want guys that could dribble and shoot. He wanted to find out who had work ethic, who had endurance. He wanted to know who was tough and committed. Uh, In other words, let's see who really wants to be here up front, and then we can teach the rest. Coach Woodham could teach layups. He couldn't teach heart and commitment. Well, we spent the last really couple of months looking at this this letter, the book of 1 Peter, and this is a theme that Peter continually brings to us throughout this book, that the Christian life, Peter is clear on this, the Christian life is filled with unimaginable blessings but it's also a life of testing. It's a life of great difficulty that requires endurance and toughness and commitment. Uh, Not everybody can just sign up to be a Christian and coast on through life. You're going to find out what you're made of if you're really going to follow Jesus. Peter's been clear on that. And we remember that his original audience, this church that he's writing to, they were were not skating through life. They were facing tremendous persecution because of their faith. Uh, They perhaps felt like they were constantly just running down and backs, running this race that may have felt for them unwinnable because the larger culture hated them for their faith. And everywhere they turned, it was extreme. It was difficult. And yet Peter continually throughout this letter frames their perspective. That's what he's doing again for us today. He wants to frame our perspective on all of life, not just when life is easy, but certainly when life is hard, how are we supposed to see it and how, we should, how should we respond? That's what 1 Peter 4 at the end certainly is all about. Uh, one of my pastoral heroes, a guy named Tim Keller, he said this, that the promise of God is not for better life circumstances. The promise is a better life. And the trick is to learn the difference. The promise of God is not better circumstances, it's a better life, and the trick is that we learn the difference, okay? And what Peter tells us in chapter 4 is this, that even if you suffer as a Christian, you ought to rejoice as one who is richly blessed. And that is counterintuitive, that violates our natural way of thinking, but that is a message that is clear throughout all the Scripture, and it's very clear here at the end of chapter 4. So let's look at it in, in pieces here, beginning again in verse 12. What we just read, 1 Peter 4, 12, he says, Beloved, he's talking to us, the church. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, this might be one of the most underrated verses in the Bible right here, 
Because it's, this is the kind of verse that can change your entire perspective on life, really and truly. Because here's the truth. I think for most people, most Christians, this is something I've felt and believed for a long, long time, that if I'm a Christian, if I love God, if I serve God, then bad things won't happen to me. Bad things shouldn't happen. And if, and, and, okay, if, if bad things do happen, it's really only because something good's coming. There's something good that God has for me, better that he has for me around the corner. So I'm get the bad stuff out of the way and it'll, it'll be great. Right? But y'all, yeah, that's not the, the message of the scripture. That's not the promise that the Bible gives to us. The scripture does not say that if you're a Christian, that somehow you just get a free pass through all the pain and difficulty of life. We really and truly, we face all the difficult things that everybody else faces, and sometimes even worse. And so Peter is telling us right here the same thing that Paul and James and John and, of course, Jesus have also told us, don't be surprised. James, uh, Peter says, at the fiery ordeal, that doesn't sound easy, it's not meant to. Don't be surprised at the suffering that you're experiencing as if some strange thing is happening to you. We are not entitled to better than what we're getting. Uh, we don't get better simply because we carry the label of Christian. This is, suffering is, Peter says, a normal part of life. You ought to expect it. But he says this also, it's not just normal, it's purposeful. And we shouldn't miss this because this is more important than just expecting suffering is to understand that God has a purpose in suffering. Peter says the same thing he told us way back in chapter one. He says, this is coming upon you for your testing. That idea of testing is the idea of the blacksmith who heats up metals in order to pound them into shape so that they become something more useful. It's not formless and shapeless anymore. It becomes something useful but it requires that it's heated up. That's what testing is, and that's what Peter says suffering does for us, that our present pain falls under the ultimate purposes of God. We might be tempted to think that pain and suffering um, obstructs God's good plan for our life. It gets in the way. It messes it up. But the Scripture is clear for us. It's part of the purpose. It actually helps fulfill God's purpose for us. Such an important thing for us to understand. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that evil things are somehow not really evil. They're really good. That's, that's not the, the perspective of, of Peter. Evil's evil. Pain is painful. Bad things are bad. But we don't view it as if it's somehow purposeless or meaningless. God has a purpose, even in things that are, uh, for us, terrible and painful. It's like I got glasses a couple of weeks ago. I'm seeing through different lenses now. I'm seeing the world in a new way. It's pretty awesome. I can see the ticker on the bottom of ESPN when, I'm, when I want to see other scores. I can actually tell what's going on. It's amazing. We, see, we have to see life through a different lens, Peter says, and here's what it is. Look at verse 13. Here's the new lens. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of, of glory and of God rests on you. Important for us to get this. Um, you know, when I look at suffering in the Bible, I just, I just apply whatever pain I've experienced to it. And of course, that's true that God is present with us. God loves us through all manner of suffering and pain, all of it. But Peter has a specific kind of suffering in mind here in chapter four. And it's, it's really, it's, it's what we would call Christian persecution. He's talking about the kind of suffering that we experience because of our faith. 
Okay, so it can't be generalized entirely in this case. It needs to be specific. That's what he means when he says you share in the sufferings of Christ. You are, you are going through difficulty because you are a follower of Jesus. Okay, so that's the, that's the context here. And what he's saying is if, you're, if you are mistreated as a Christian, rejoice right through it. Keep on rejoicing in an ongoing way because the revelation of his glory is coming. We see that? that? That there is, when Jesus returns, we will rejoice, he says, with exaltation, with an overabundance of rejoicing, a rejoicing that has no category for us in this present life. There's coming a day where suffering and pain will be, at best, a distant memory, where there will be no tears, no crying, no death in the new heavens and the new earth. That day is coming, and we rejoice in that. Um, what we, the rejoicing that you and I experience now in the midst of our suffering, uh, it's real, but it's deferred. That's why Peter, in chapter 1, he told us, fix your hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ that is to be brought to you. Okay? Our hope is not in this life. It's in, there's a sense in which our hope and our joy is deferred. Okay? But uh, that's, that's for us a, a, a good thing that your greatest hope is not in this life. Can you imagine how ultimately depressing that would be, that whatever we experience and achieve in this life is all there is? And that's why Jesus, uh, Peter's really echoing something Jesus said. Way back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said, for your reward in heaven is great. Jesus said, in the midst of our persecution, we look heavenward and we rejoice because we know what's coming. We're not getting any better than what Jesus himself got while he was on the earth, but his death and his resurrection, his victory over sin, evil, and death assures that we will rejoice ourselves for all eternity. Isn't that good news? But that's not all for Peter. If you look in verse 14, he says, it's not just future glory. Thankfully, he says, if you are reviled for Jesus, you are blessed right now. Present tense, you are blessed because his spirit rests on you. So it's not just good news for the future. It's good news for us even today. The spirit of God rests on you. You're blessed right now. Uh, I can think of no better story that reflects that truth than what happened in Acts chapter 5. You don't have to turn to Acts 5. But in Acts chapter 5, at the, in the early stages of the church, the apostles were doing their thing in Jerusalem. The church was growing. God's favor was upon them. Uh, but the religious leaders got uh, frustrated with what they were witnessing. They assumed that this Jesus nonsense would just kind of dissipate on its own, and it wasn't. It was growing. And so they brought the apostles in, and they, uh, they put them in jail and brought them then before the council and they commanded them to stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop talking about this Jesus as if he's really risen from the grave. We command you to stop. They beat them over the head. They flogged them, and they threatened them. Okay? They really roughed them up. And I love the response of the apostles. Once they had been released from the council, Luke tells us in Acts 5, they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These men 
rejoiced that God would consider them worthy to suffer for Jesus. I mean, that, that, that phrase doesn't even make sense to my natural mind. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you rejoice in suffering? And yet that was their very first and most natural response because they were suffering in, in, uh, in the same way that Jesus suffered. They were, they were considered worthy to walk in his footsteps and suffer for his name. And that suffering only emboldened them all the more rather than retreating Rather than wilting under the pressure, they just kept on going. It's like uh, the, the assumption of the religious leaders was this, that you know, these Christians, they're in the minority. They have no political or social power. So we'll just beat them up a little bit. We'll threaten them. We'll put the squeeze on them. And surely they will, they will uh, they'll retreat. They'll keep their mouth shut. But what happened instead is that... that punishment, that suffering was like gasoline to the fire. It only made them more courageous, more excited, more opportune is this moment now for us to share Jesus. And you know, Peter was one of the the apostles in that story. In Acts chapter 5, that was Peter who, who left the council doing cartwheels that can't believe that Jesus would let me suffer for him, rejoicing. And now years later, he's writing this letter to the church, to us, affirming something that he doesn't know to be true simply because it's written somewhere, he's lived it. That you can suffer well and you can rejoice through it if you're suffering for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. When you are reviled, you are blessed because his spirit rests on you. Peter knew it to be true because he's lived it. And and we've just looked at three verses right here. Peter's really given us a very robust perspective on life and on suffering especially, hadn't he? I mean, he's, he's told us in just three short verses, he says, expect it. It's coming. Don't be surprised, but understand that it has purpose. It's not something you endure just because. It's something that God puts you through for his refining purposes. And when it comes, rejoice because you get to suffer for Jesus. You get to walk in the footsteps of of the greatest person who's ever walked this earth, you get to live for Christ and you get to suffer for his name. His spirit will strengthen you in the present. Oh, and his glory preserves you for your future. Now, if I really believed that, that would change my life. I want to believe it and I want to live it out. I hope you do too. It changes everything. And so there's no, there's no religion, there's no philosophy out there, nothing that we're going to find that comes even close to the depth of meaning and purpose that the Scripture gives to our pain. You, we only find it in Jesus, I can assure you. We'll only find it here. Now, this is, this is, a, this is a powerful teaching all by itself. We could, we could pray and stop here. We'd beat everybody to lunch. We're not going to do that because Peter's not done. I'm not going to cut him short, okay, because really what he's about to tell us is, is a theme that he has also reinforced throughout this letter, that it's not enough, ultimately, for us to endure suffering or even to rejoice in suffering. We have to suffer righteously. <laughs> we have to suffer in such a way that our suffering shows our enemies, those who would persecute us, it shows them that they cannot defeat the power of God within us. He says, suffer righteously. Look at verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now, that verse 15 is pretty pretty simple. It's pretty obvious. You can't claim Christian suffering if you're suffering for being a knucklehead. Okay, If, If I'm suffering because of my sin, 
I can't wave the flag and hope everybody feels sorry for me. I've earned it. I'm, I'm getting punished for what I've done. And it's interesting how Peter starts out with the big stuff, murder, theft, but he ends with something that, frankly, most of us might not think of as much of a sin at all. He says, don't be a troublesome meddler. Don't be a gossip. Don't be a busybody, somebody who stirs up drama and stirs up strife. Back in those days, you had to go house to house to do that. Right? You know, today, you can just get on Facebook and have a field day, right? Peter says, don't do that. So he has in mind all manner of sin here, the big stuff and the little stuff. He says, don't suffer for that stuff. Don't become a, hi- a hypocrite and claim to be a Christian and yet secretly live a hypocritical life. Um, but here's what he says instead. You see verse 16? He says, but if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever done a word study on this. It, it surprised me to find that the term Christian shows up almost never in the Bible. We use it all the time. I use it all the time. Christian. I think it shows up three times in the whole Bible. Disciple shows up a whole lot, hundreds of times. But but Christian, I think only three times. And the reason for that is the early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. That wasn't the name they used for themselves. That was actually the name given to them by their enemies. They were first called Christians in Antioch, Acts, Acts tells us, that that was a derogatory term. It was an insult. These Christians who won't stop talking about this crucified Messiah, it was meant to be demeaning to them. (coughs) And so Peter says, listen, if you are persecuted, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Suffer for that insult, because to you it's no insult at all. Glorify God in that. Glorify God in the name Christian, because it doesn't mean to you what it means to them. For them it may be an insult, but for you it's a precious thing. And again, you know, just like the religious leaders in Acts chapter 5, anybody who would persecute a Christian, their assumption is, if I will apply enough pressure, if I'll apply enough shame, if I'll mock enough, well then they'll wilt, they'll retreat, they'll give it up. Peter says no. Even in the face of mocking and insult, their insult is your glory. You are a Christian. Because the word itself means one who follows Christ. That's who you are. And that is your glory. There is no shame there. Uh, One of the classic film scenes of all time comes from the movie Spartacus, 1960. The movie Spartacus. I don't know if you've seen it. Kurt Russell. uh, Isn't that right? No. Kurt Douglas. Kurt, golly, Kurt Russell. He's still alive, isn't he? Kurt Douglas. 1960. Okay, come on. uh, Kurt Douglas was Spartacus. He was a slave who led a revolt against the Roman Empire. And toward the latter stages of the movie, the Roman Empire finally kind of squashes the, the revolt. And they've, they, you know, they've got them cornered. And they want to offer a, uh, a, a special um, reprieve. They're going to offer a... a um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're going to offer a pardon to any slave who will identify Spartacus. They know him by name only. They don't know who he is. And so if anybody will out Spartacus, we'll pardon you. You won't face punishment. They wanted to separate him out and make an example out of him for a special punishment. And in that classic scene, one by one, the slaves begin to stand up and say, I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Rather than turning on their leader, rather than outing him, they unified. They united with him. 
They claimed to be him and suffer alongside him because they were not ashamed to follow Spartacus. You know, Peter says that there's no shame for a person who unites himself to Jesus and endures hardship for his sake. There's no shame at all. Even if it means suffering in the process, we glorify the name of Christ and we glory in the fact that we're worthy to walk in his footsteps. I hope we notice this, how, how seriously the Bible takes suffering. There's an accusation, perhaps you've heard it before. You know, Chris, we Christians, we just live with our heads in the clouds. We don't take the hard things of life seriously. We're just waiting to go to heaven, you know. And y'all, I mean, the, the truth, of course, is that we do root our hope in heaven, not in this life. But that, that, that accusation is baseless. It doesn't follow the, the example of Christ, and it doesn't follow the command of Peter. We don't, take, we don't take suffering lightly. There are other religious belief systems that do. There are religions that treat suffering as an illusion. It's not real. It's only imaginary. And so we're just meant to rise above it. There are philosophies. The primary philosophy uh, of, that, that is in terms of uh, a secular philosophy in this world is pain and suffering is real, of course. There's not a whole lot we can do about it. And so the best we can hope to do is just cushion ourselves. Just make enough money, have enough you know, good, good friends and family around you that when pain does come, you don't feel it maybe as, as severely. Just try to avoid it and be happy as much as you can. That's ultimately a, a bankrupt philosophy, right? I think. The Bible actually takes suffering very seriously because it calls pain and suffering what it is. It admits this is painful, this is difficult. We are not exempt from it, and we're not living with our heads in the clouds. We have the Spirit of God who rests upon us that we might even rejoice through our suffering now in light of what is to come. We can live uh, with the same courage and boldness of the apostles who were living in the example of Jesus Christ, even when life is insanely difficult. It's important that we grasp that because what Peter says next, uh, the last little part of this, this chapter, it may be hard to accept if we don't understand the rest. Look at verse 17. We're being called to suffer righteously. Here's why. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with great difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Peter says that judgment begins with the people of God. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that when we suffer, we are being punished for our sins. Because the, the very thing that makes you a Christian is the fact that Jesus Christ has already borne the punishment for your sins. That God has put your judgment in that regard upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ and he took it away from you on the cross. It's done with. That you are now forgiven both today and forever because of the salvation that you have by faith in Jesus. So it can't mean a, a punitive judgment. You're not being punished for your sins. That's not how this works. But there is a sense of judgment that Peter is talking about that comes within the, the context of our present life, our present pain and suffering. So rather than this pain being punitive, Peter actually says it's purifying. Remember what he said, in, I think it's in verse 12, at the very beginning of this section, he says, this comes upon you for your testing, not for your punishment. Not because you're getting what you deserve. It's so that God might put you, th put you through the fire, as it were, and make you more like his son, Jesus. Now, we don't necessarily like that. 
but there is purpose in it. It's for your testing. So it's not punitive, it's purifying. This judgment comes upon us as the work of God making us more like Christ. Verse 18 says, we are saved with difficulty. That doesn't mean that God, it's hard for God to save you, that he just barely got you in, you know? It means that we're saved in, this, in the sense of how we, we this life, uh, as, as we prepare for the life to come, it is, it is insanely difficult. It's with great difficulty that we are saved, that we are rescued from this present and evil generation. And so the idea is that there is a judgment that we experience here and now. It's not the same kind of judgment that we, we probably typically think when we hear that word, but that's what sets up the contrast. You see the contrast that our judgment, our suffering happens here and now. It happens in this life, but we are delivered eternally into glory. Then Peter asks a rhetorical question. He says, if it starts here with us, in the way that we experience it, what then will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Uh, Their judgment is not purifying like ours is. Their judgment is punitive. It is to the person who rejects God and his grace. There is no glory that awaits that kind of person. Paul, the apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, that the godless will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is not a pretty picture. That's not something that, that um, excites us to think about. I, I don't want that for anybody. You shouldn't either. But that's the reality for those who deny God. And that's why Peter has told us, listen, when you suffer, suffer righteously in the hopes that those who persecute you might look at you and see the glory of God and glorify him themselves. Peter wants an evangelistic response to come from our suffering. Okay? We don't want this to happen, but he, he wants to underscore the reality here. This is God's righteous judgment. When we, it, it might be our temptation to think that when things go bad for us in this life, that that somehow is an indictment against God's character. If God really loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. But Peter says, no, listen, if it happens to you, it's for your purification that you suffer now with an assurance that you will not suffer later, and you will be more, more like Christ in the process. Okay? God has not abandoned you. It's affirming. It's not a denial of his character. Um, but it's not that way for everybody. That God's righteousness is, is a sword that cuts both ways. Right? It's not punitive for us, praise God, but it is for those who reject him, and therefore we ought to suffer righteously. We should take this very seriously. And that sets up the, how he closes for us in verse 19. He says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's how he concludes. And if we suffer according to the will of God, I think that means that when we suffer, it, it doesn't fall outside of God's hands. It passes through his hands. He is sovereign. He is the faithful creator. That means that God both loves you and that he is powerful enough to see you through it. He created the universe. There's nothing too difficult for him. And so if you suffer as a Christian, Peter says, you need to know that your pain is not a coincidence. It's not something that comes upon you and God is up in heaven shrugging his shoulders, hoping that you make your way through it. He knows what it is and perhaps he's even brought it to your plate in order to make you more like Jesus. That ought to give us encouragement that nothing happens outside of the sovereign will of God. It may feel pointless from our perspective. It may be for us something that if we consider God's wise, perfect, eternal will, I just can't make sense of why this would happen. 
You're, you're free to believe that and feel that way. Listen, it's, it's not uncommon for us to go through things that make us just shrug our shoulders and wonder, what could God be up to in this? But Peter assures us that we, we, if we entrust our souls to a faithful creator in continuing to do what is right, if we continue to follow Christ in obedience and love and devotion, then all our suffering, it won't just make sense in the end, but the refining outcome will be the most glorious thing we could ever imagine. That we will see Christ, and in the strangest way the scripture says, we will be like him. That's what this produces. I know it's a silly story, but I think back about uh, seventh grade basketball tryouts. I still wake up in cold sweats, y'all, thinking about those down and backs. Coach Woodham, I kept wondering, what does this have to do with basketball? Coach Woodham knew what he was doing. It was much more than I realized at the time. It was, it was designed to purify. It was designed up front to figure out, okay, who's committed here? Who can endure? Who is willing to obey the coach even when things get difficult? Who's willing to trust that the coach knows better than me? Who's willing to trust the process? Let's find out up front. Okay? Um, listen, God knows who are his God, if, if you are God's child, he knows you in the deepest, most intimate way. He's not putting you through testing to figure out if you have what it takes. Okay, that's not how it works. It's not like basketball tryouts here. But it, listen, it's natural for us when we suffer, when we just feel like we're running down and back and there's no end in sight. What does this have to do with anything? What is God up to in the midst of this? And we, Peter assures us here, we may not get clear answers to those questions up front. God, God may not spell it all out for us in a way that we can comprehend. That may not happen on this side of eternity, but Peter assures us that we are living in the midst of God's eternal purpose. That this life may seem long for us, but it's a blip on eternity compared to the life to come. And God is doing a shaping work, a testing work, a refining work in us that frankly doesn't happen when life is easy. It happens when we go through the fire. And in the end, we'll recognize that God was with us, creating among us and in us something that we could never be apart from him. And so when we read Peter in this section, my hope is for you and me, if you're not going through pain right now, it will come. My hope is that what we do now in the, in the understanding of God's word will strengthen us for that day, will prepare us for what God might call us to walk through. If you suffer as a Christian you share in what Jesus came to do. He didn't enjoy it any more than we do. He didn't waltz right through it unaffected. It was painful for him, and it's painful for us. But if we share in his sufferings, the scripture says, we will also share in his glory. We are united with him in the most powerful way, and having been united with Christ on this side of heaven, listen now, to be united with him on this side of heaven, Peter says, we will rejoice with exaltation when he is revealed in his glory. No amount of pain we experience here and now can compare with the overwhelming glory that is to be revealed to us when we meet him face to face. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, we thank you this morning for difficult scriptures and for scriptures that touch on very difficult topics. I thank you, Lord, that, that First Peter is almost all given to this, this issue. 
of the undeniable suffering that we experience in this life. Thank you for it. Thank you, Lord, that we're not without resources. Thank you, Father, that we're not the, that we're not the kind of people who just shrug our shoulders and try to cushion ourselves against pain. That we, we have the ability to trust Jesus Christ and even rejoice in the midst of hardship. <coughs> because the spirit of, of glory rests upon us. Father, I don't pretend right now that all of us are in a place of rejoicing. Um, because, Lord, it doesn't happen for us naturally. It doesn't come easily. Um, it, it requires for us um, a transformation of a heart. And so, Father, I pray that for us. I pray that for me, for every brother and sister in this room that you would, be, you would do the transforming work that only you can do. That when we stare pain in the face, that, Father, we acknowledge it as painful, but, Father, we see the, we see the greater reality. We see the overwhelming truth that Jesus Christ suffered for us. That, Lord, you, you do not sit aloof far away from our pain, but you came to experience it yourself in ways that we cannot imagine so that you might um, establish us, Lord, in present glory and secure us for future glory. Father, I, I pray for those of us right now who may have trouble believing that, may have trouble grasping that. I'm one of them. This is hard. But Lord, you are, I pray that, that we will find you, Lord, to be truthful and gracious through it. I pray that we would believe your word, but I pray also that we would find the promises of your word true. That, Lord, your gracious presence rests upon us when life is at its worst. Father, thank you that you don't treat us like your pets and just make things easy for us. I know we might prefer that, Father, but thank you, Lord, that you put us through the ringer if it means making us more like Jesus. We will spend an eternity thanking you for it. And so, Father, prepare us well for that now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.